From the World Studios in Boston, I'm Ritu Chatterjee. It's October 26th, 2012, and you're listening to the World Science Podcast number 157. Did you enjoy that musical interlude? If we can call it musical. And can you recognize the voice of the song? I'll let you ponder over that because we'll hear it again later in the show, along with stories about boosting your child's brain power, photographing penguins under ice, and diseases that jump into humans from animals. But first, this reminder, the World Science Podcast comes to you from the world. The World is a one-hour international news show that airs across the U.S. and Canada on about 300 radio stations. We are co-produced by the BBC World Service, Public Radio International and WGBH Radio in Boston. Learn more about our radio show and all our coverage at theworld.org and you can find our science and tech coverage at theworld.org science. For our first story, we go to Oxford University where a researcher will soon test a new way to help children learn math. It involves applying an electric current to part of the brain. Strange, I know it sounds, but the technique's been shown to work in adults, and some parents are eager to gain access to this device that applies the electric current. But is the technique safe, and is this an ethical way to improve a child's performance in school? Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program, Nova, finds out. Sam is 14 years old and lives in southern England. When he sits down with his guitar, he says the music just flows out of him. When I play guitar, my brain just works like super well. I can learn new things really quickly and remember them for a long amount of time. I don't really have to think about it. You know, I just do it. It's kind of natural to me. But when it comes to math, that's a different story. I don't understand it. It's like speaking Chinese to me. I don't know what the heck it means. He's okay with the basics, adding, subtracting, multiplying, but anything more advanced is hard for Sam. Several years ago, his performance in class slumped. Sam was giving up, and his parents, Kathy and Dan, who asked that their last name not be used, were worried. You feel kind of helpless. You, you, you want to do the best you can to try and get the best out of your child. As a father, you want to see your son really reaching and aspiring and really wanting to try. You want your son to believe in himself. So they started looking into all sorts of ways to help Sam. Dietary supplements, tutoring, biofeedback. None of it worked. And then Dan stumbled upon a study out of Oxford University. The man who ran that study is a neuroscientist named Roy cohen Kadosh. We did several experiments showing that if we're stimulating the right brain area with the right protocol, we can actually improve mathematical abilities. In his study, cohen Kadosh used something called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS. He put electrodes on each subject's scalp, and delivered a trickle of current, about a milliamp, to the brain. By giving this tiny electricity, we can change the responsiveness of the neurons and make them more prone to fire and to participate in a certain cognitive task. Cohen Kadosh applied this electrical current while teaching his subject certain mathematical tasks. These sessions were repeated multiple times over the course of a week. Those who got the treatment performed better on these tasks compared with those who didn't have the treatment. 
and this effect lasted upwards of six months. Now, TDCS isn't exactly new. In fact, for over a hundred years, scientists have tried it out on everything from treating pain to helping patients who've suffered strokes. Lately, though, there's been a flurry of interest in using this technique to enhance learning. For instance, the U.S. Air Force recently tested this kind of electrical stimulation on those who pilot unmanned drones. It appeared to improve their accuracy at locating enemy targets in complex radar images. And the general public may soon have wider access to the technology. Although TDCS devices are regulated as medical equipment, you can find instructions for do-it-yourself kits online. And a company in Barcelona called Neuroelectrics has just launched an inexpensive version for use in doctors' offices. The apparatus is called StarStim, and marketing director Uri Flegel is trying one on. You basically connect it here. And you put it on. He fits a snug neoprene cap on his head and velcros it beneath his chin. The electrodes can be inserted into any of the twenty or so holes in the cap, depending on which part of the brain requires stimulation. Well, you have different sizes of head, like you wear clothes, so you have small, medium, large caps.、Uh, we design as well caps for kids in different ages. Now the device is intended for medical use, for instance, treating pain. But Flegel says he can't control if doctors decide to use it off-label for other purposes, like enhancing learning. Most of the studies that have looked at TDCS to improve learning have been conducted on adults, and that includes the Oxford study of math abilities. Very little is known about the effects and the side effects of this kind of brain stimulation on kids. And yet, that's not stopping some parents from wanting to get their hands on this technology. I am now prepared to mess with my son's neurochemistry to allow him success. You know, plug him in in the morning, plug him in the afternoon, and then rewire the brain. Gloriana, not her real name, lives outside of London with her husband and two kids. Depending on which doctor they've seen, her 14-year-old son's been diagnosed with ADD, Asperger's, or dyslexia. He's actually quite good at math, but he has trouble with other subjects. And Gloriana wants to see if this device might help him succeed in school. If we just stand by and see him fail, not be able to have a job, be more isolated, I don't know. I don't want him worse. We just have to give him the best chance of having a normal life. Gloriana is one of many parents who have reached out to Roy Cohen Kadosh, the Oxford researcher, asking if he could test his device on their kids. In fact, he's just started recruiting children for a new study to see if it can improve their math abilities, just like it did in adults. My job is to be frank with the parents and to tell them what we know at the moment. And like any other treatment, there is risk, but I don't think that the risk here is high. Still, no one knows if the device might cause subtle harm to a child's developing brain. Which brings us back to Dan and Kathy of Southern England. They're trying to figure out if they should enroll their son Sam in the new study at Oxford, and they're torn. The idea of having a very tiny amperage that could have a dramatic improvement, in some ways, actually sounds radically safer. Than allowing my son to have some of these other drugs that are so commonly used right now, with nobody batting an eye, I would be slightly concerned that it it doesn't become habit forming.、Yes. When you see results suddenly go up, does a child suddenly want to use it more and more? That's possibly where I might have to draw the line. 
And the prospect of this kind of brain enhancement raises big questions for society. Would a device like this give an unfair advantage to wealthy kids whose parents can afford the brain-boosting technology? Might it discourage kids from simply trying harder in school? And as for Sam, as much as he wants to get better at math, he says he doesn't want to be a lab rat. When you attach something to your head, you don't know what's going on inside it, and that might kind of freak me out just a bit. You know, I'd rather know it's been proven to help people than、uh, be the first one to try it. Sam won't be the first one. Roy Cohen Kadosh has identified a volunteer child to kick off the new study. He and his team at Oxford are planning to get started by the end of this year. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Oxford. You've probably read about the nine visitors to Yosemite Park earlier this year who became infected with hantavirus. Hantavirus infection is an example of a zoonotic disease, a disease that jumps to humans from animals. Hantavirus normally infects. Rodents and humans become infected when they come into contact with infected rodents or rodent droppings. A few other examples of zoonotic diseases are AIDS, swine flu, and bird flu. Now, when a zoonotic disease makes this jump from one species to another, the event is something that scientists call a spillover. And spillover is also the title of a new book by science journalist David Quammen. In this book, Quammen argues that such spillovers are becoming increasingly common. There seems to be a drumbeat of increasing incidences of of new things emerging, spilling over into humans in the last fifty years, and it seems to have to do with things that we're doing, the way the way we're dealing with ecosystems and animals on the planet. That's David Quammen. He spoke with me recently from a studio in Portland, Oregon. And up next is my conversation with him about his new book. And he started by telling me one story from his book. The story is about a particular spillover that occurred in the early 1990s in a place called Hendra in Australia. September 1994, in a place called Hendra, which is a suburb of Brisbane, a suburb devoted to horse racing, horses suddenly started getting very sick. One horse fell sick first. She, her face swelled up. She had trouble breathing. She became clumsy, falling down, ran a fever,、um, bloody froth coming up her throat, and eventually she died. And the trainer and veterinarian who treated her thought maybe she was bit by a snake.、Uh, maybe she got some toxic weeds or something like that. They didn't think too much more about it until two weeks later or so, when other horses in the same stable started going down. Ill with the same kind of an ailment, so it seemed clear then that this was an infectious disease. There were three people trying to save these horses: a veterinarian,、um, a horse trainer, and a stable hand.、Uh, they were reaching down the horse's throat, trying to clear windpipes, and then two of them got sick. The、uh, mm-hmm. The horse trainer got sick with something that seemed like a severe flu. Went to the hospital. The stable hand got sick and went home. And then the horse trainer died in hospital from organ failure. They found a virus in him. It was a virus they had never seen before, but it looked to be oh loosely related to measles. And then they found the same virus in the horses. They named it Hendra virus after this little suburb. And then the next step was to figure out where had this thing come from. 
from what source? And that took quite a lot of detective work. Right. That's when the disease detection phase of the investigation started. There was a fellow named Hume Field. He was trained as a veterinarian. He decided to do a doctorate in ecology, and somebody said, why don't you do it on this new disease? So he went looking for the ecological source of this new virus. He looked in uh, wallabies and kangaroos and rats and insects and everything that was around the stables, didn't find it, and he finally found it in a species of bat, a giant fruit bat that had become relatively common in that part of Australia. Now, what I found most fascinating about this case is that the virus had probably been around in Australia for a long, long time, and so had uh, the bats. But the spillover event to humans could only happen because of something we humans did, that is, introduce horses into Australia that allowed for this jump from bat to horse and then horse to human. That's right. The virus does seem to have had a very long relationship with three or four species of fruit bat in Australia, but there's no record of it having spilled over directly from bats into humans or having spilled over at any earlier time. So there were a couple of new factors. One is that horses had been brought in by English settlers in the 18th century, and the other is that uh, people much more recently had begun destroying the wild eucalyptus forests yeah. where these bats would normally feed. So the bats were coming in to places like the, the horse pastures and the stables, and they were shedding this virus. It got into the horses off of grass that had had fruit pulp and bat feces and urine dropped on it. And then the horses became the amplifier hosts for this virus. The virus went rampant in them. It multiplied very abundantly, and then they shed it. It came spilling out of them in the form, for instance, of this bloody froth. And it was so abundant that it, it managed to infect even humans. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier, and you talk about again and again in your book that these zoonotic diseases, these spillovers aren't just happening to us. We humans are creating conditions and situations where they can happen. That's right, Rita. We, we hear about these things. We hear about, oh, there's an outbreak of hantavirus uh, among people who visited Yosemite this summer, and there's a new outbreak of Ebola virus in Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, West Nile fever is setting records for infecting people in Texas. We hear about all these things, and we tend to think of them as independent events and things, misfortunes that are happening um, to us, when in fact they represent parts of a pattern, and that pa pattern reflects things that we're doing. We're, we're, to some degree at least, causing these outbreaks because we are more and more interacting with the animals that carry these viruses. How are we interacting with them? Well, by going into their wild ecosystems, disrupting the ecosystems, killing and eating these animals. As I say in the book, you shake a tree and things fall out. And I mean that both uh, figuratively and literally. And now, of course, there's so much more global travel and trade than there was 100 years ago. That's right. It's the globalization of infectious disease as well as other kinds of globalization so that once these things are in us, they can travel everywhere in a matter of days, even a matter of 12 to 14 hours, the way the, way the SARS virus did in 2003. Now, these diseases, the zoonotic diseases, make up over, what, 60% of uh, diseases? About 60% of our infectious diseases, yes. Yeah. Now, what about them makes them sort of more worrisome or dangerous? 
Well, some of these are very small diseases. For instance, we talked about Hendra. Mm-hmm. Hendra has spilled over from bats into horses, into humans, but not very many humans. It's only killed three or four humans out of six or eight known cases. So some people say, well, why, why worry about that when hundreds of thousands of children are dying of um, bacterial diarrhea diseases and malnutrition around the world. And there are a couple different answers to that. Some of them are subjective. Some of them are are blunt and objective. The bluntest of all the answers is AIDS. AIDS is a zoonotic disease that spilled over from chimpanzees into humans in the southeastern corner of Cameroon back as early as 1908 give or take a margin of error, and it has killed 30 million people Mm -hmm. and counting and infected another 33 million. So the reason to be concerned about these diseases and to take them very seriously um, is that we want to identify the next HIV and the next pandemic influenza at a very early stage so that it can be contained uh, and fewer people will die. Now, you know, I, it's difficult or perhaps impossible to predict what the next big one um, might be, the next big pandemic. But what's the scientific consensus on what it's likely to be? Yeah. Well, it is difficult to predict, as you say. And I've asked some of the world's experts this question. And and one, for instance, um, Uh, An expert on the evolution of influenza told me literally that, well, we don't have a chance in hell of predicting the next influenza, exactly what sort of a strain it'll be. But they can make a few um, judicious um, guesses. The experts say that, well, when the next big one arrives, and, and and it presumably will, it will almost certainly be a zoonotic disease. It will almost certainly be caused by a virus and it will probably be caused by a single-stranded RNA virus. That means certain families of viruses we should watch very carefully, the influenzas, the retroviruses, the coronaviruses that includes SARS, um, the group that includes Ebola virus. And that's why there's been news just in the last few weeks about a SARS-like coronavirus emerging on the Arabian Peninsula. It has only killed one man and made another man sick, but scientists all over the world have been watching that virus extremely closely Mm -hmm. because it is a a coronavirus, at least loosely, related to SARS, and and therefore it falls in the... um, Uh, in the category that rings the loudest alarm bells. Mm -hmm. Now, one might expect that a book like this would be um, scary and alarming, but in fact, that's not the message I got. I didn't uh, read the book and think, oh my God, we're all doomed, (laughs) because in fact, you end on a very hopeful note. Tell me what makes you so hopeful, especially about our ability to um, manage or control new outbreaks. Well, in a general sense, what makes me guardedly hopeful is the quality of the science and the public health that I saw during the six years I researched this book. Being out in the field with people like Jonathan Epstein of EcoHealth Alliance uh, and uh, Lisa Jones Engel of the University of Washington and these other disease scientists, Billy Karish of EcoHealth Alliance, these professionals with training in primatology, veterinary medicine, ecology, public health, sometimes combinations of all those 
it's an it's like a, a new breed, a new guild of scientists who are out there studying this problem, doing uh, dangerous but brilliant field work trying to identify where these diseases are emerging from, what their reservoir hosts are, why they're spilling over now more than ever. Uh, that gives me a lot of hope um, and a lot of admiration for these scientists. And in the meantime, the work, the diagnostic work that's happening in laboratories is also um, more sophisticated, uh, more um, more savvy and more speedy than ever before. So there's a much better chance than there was 15 or 20 years ago that when the next big one spills over into humans, we can we can recognize it, we can identify it, characterize the virus, and institute uh, measures of of constraint of containment um, better than ever before. David Corman is the author of Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. David, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome, Ritu. I've enjoyed speaking with you. David Corman there talking about his new book, Spillover. It's a great read and has many other stories about zoonotic diseases, pandemics and scientists who do this brave and backbreaking work of chasing these viruses, identifying them and the public health workers who try and control outbreaks um, when they emerge. To learn more about the book, check out today's show notes. And um, on the show notes, you'll also find links to other zoonotic diseases that we've covered in the past, both on this podcast and on the radio show. And you know where to find the show notes. They're at theworld.org slash science. Remember the tune you heard at the top of the show? No? Well, let's hear it again. Any idea what the song is or who the singer might be? Okay, now write down your guess and tweet it to me at WorldSciPod. That's World S-C-I-P-O-D. Or you can email it to me at ritu.chatterjee at bbc.co.uk. But remember, you can't change your answer after I've revealed it in the next few minutes. Okay, all right, here we go. The sound that you just heard is not by a human at all. In fact, it's by a white whale, a beluga. Yes, a whale. This beluga was named Nosy by the scientists who were studying it and working with it. A Nosy story and the discovery of his human-like calls is a fascinating one. Nosy lived somewhere off the coast of Canada. Back in 1977, when he was three or four years old, he was captured by Inuit hunters and shipped off to a naval research facility in San Diego. Scientists there worked with Nosy and two other belugas to study whale behavior, especially whale communication. The whales were kept in enclosures at a pier, and some of the experiments, which involved recording whale sounds, were done at the pier or at sea. The whales were trained to follow the scientists' boat out to sea and then back um, when they were experimenting in open sea, that is. One day, when some divers were working with the whales at the enclosures, suddenly a diver surfaces from under the water and asks his colleagues on land, who asked me to get out of the water? Turns out no one had. And that's when the scientists started wondering if it was one of the whales. And they started paying more attention to the whale calls um, and the recordings of the whale calls and realized that it was Nosy who made these human-like sounds. 
And then the scientists went on to compare the acoustics of these sounds with human voices and found that the acoustics match quite a lot. Of course, the acoustics of normal beluga calls, which sound something like this. Or like this. Are very different from human-made sounds. So the researchers also investigated how Nosi made those sounds and found that the mechanism was very different when he made um, human sounds versus normal whale sounds. And the researchers have published all these findings in a research paper this week. Sadly, Nosi is no longer alive to enjoy the publicity his human mimicry is getting right now. He died four years ago after almost 30 years of life in San Diego. By the way, Nosi isn't the first beluga to imitate human sounds. Another beluga named Lagosi, um, who uh, was at the Vancouver Aquarium, had apparently learned how to say its name and would keep saying it. Lagosi also made other gobbled human-like sounds, but nobody actually recorded them. So Nosi's human-like sounds are the first to be recorded and analyzed. Belugas have a wide range of frequencies in their calls, which is why scientists think that they are able to imitate humans when they want to. Anyway, a special thanks to the Vancouver Aquarium Cetacean Research Program for those other normal whale sounds. And thanks to Sam Ridgway and his colleagues, the authors of the Noces study, for uh, the recordings of Noces songs. And now to another marine animal, a bird penguins, and a guy who has photographed penguins under ice. Canadian Paul Nicklin began his career as a biologist tracking polar bears. Now he's a wildlife photographer. He won the prestigious Veolia Environment Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award, and his award is for a picture he took underwater of emperor penguins bursting through a hole in the ice of Antarctica. You can see that picture on today's show notes at theworld.org slash science. Nicklin told the world's Marco Woman that he had early training for working in the cold. When I was four years old, my parents moved from Saskatchewan to a tiny Inuit community on the southern end of Baffin Island, up by Greenland. And we lived with, uh, I think in the community, there were 190 Inuit people. The ice and the snow were my sandbox and I mean, I fell through the ice as a kid. I, you know, went under under the ice into the water and able to pull myself out. And as an adult now, when I'm up on the ice, I'm so comfortable. I can read the ice, understand the ice. I'm, you know, I feel like I'm with the Inuit out there. You know, or I'm one of them. So that it's I've been very lucky with my upbringing, which gave me the foundation to do what I do today. What he does is photograph nature very close up, like when he got that shot of the penguins. The best way to, to get this shot was to go in the water, just with a snorkel, so there's no bubble, there's nothing, you know, no, no noise, take my legs and I would lock them underneath the ice and I'd lock them into the ice. And then I wouldn't move for sometimes an hour and you'd wait and you wait and you're freezing and there's nothing to see, there's nothing to see. And all of a sudden the distance, because it's so clear, you see these specks coming at you. And those are the penguins coming in from the open ocean. They've been at sea for three weeks. And I thought that they were going to freak out. And they came in very nervous at first. I mean, they come in very curious of what you are. But within a second, they know that you're not a threat. I had emperor penguins that weigh 
30 kilos sitting on top of my head. I had them on my back. I had them jumping on my back to get onto the ice. And I had them in this picture that won. I mean, that's a, an emperor penguin that's floating. It's actually leaning, resting against the side of my head. As I'm floating there, it's floating against my head. So I actually used it to frame the picture. I could use it as a piece of art as it's sitting there looking at me preening itself. And then all the other penguins started coming in. And, you know, it's just a matter of shooting a lot of pictures and watching the moment unfold. Paul Nicklin says he wants to do more than just make pretty pictures. I used to be a scientist. I'm a biologist by training, and I love biology, I'm, and, and I love photography, but I felt helpless as a biologist. I Biology wasn't allowing me to communicate. We would go out and tag so many polar bears, come back with data sheets, and we were ineffective. So I thought if I can only bridge the gap between good science, important science, and the public by using photography to tell a story that will really resonate with people... It's about telling stories. We need journalism. You know, we, we, right now with the, the current state of the planet, um, you know, if, if we are just shooting pretty pictures, then we're just fiddling while Rome burns. We need to be doing conservation-driven stories. We need to be at least doing stories that have a message or have a story or are educating people. And, and I think that's what excites me the most about this, about being a photographer, is being a storyteller more so than just taking pretty pictures. Canadian nature photographer Paul Nicklin. See his prize-winning photo, Bubble Jetting Emperors, at theworld.org. Or you can see them on our science website, theworld.org slash science. That's it for today. I'll be back again in November with another episode of the World Science Podcast. In the meantime, have a great Halloween, Diwali, Eid, or any other festival you may be celebrating at this time of the year. I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Until the next episode, take care. Goodbye.